0: Welcome. You are listening to Sermon Audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church. Experience a new day in your life. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm John Lewis. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we want to welcome you to the service again today. So today we are concluding our series on the commands of Christ. Now we've been, this is the eighth week in our series this morning. And so uh, today we're talking about the topic of worship. And our focal passage today is in Mark 12, verses 28 through 31. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to... um, uh, to open your Bibles and read read this passage along with me, uh, one of the things i'll tell you about that I've discovered about myself is is I think that I've become lazy uh, when it comes to uh, using this sword in in service i what I find myself doing is reading the verses on the screen. Uh, I get used to reading the words on the screen and i don 't even bother to open it up and then I find myself not even pulling it out of my bag of stuff that I bring in the morning so um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask this morning that as we read the passage you may have a different translation than the one I'm using but let's look it up in our Bibles this morning and you uh, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning there's a couple of options that you have if you have a smartphone or a tablet with you uh, there are Bible apps you can get one of the best ones out there is called the U Version Bible um, and it allows you to Look up many different translations, probably more translations than you knew were there. And then the other option you have is to just go to BibleGateway.com, and you can pull it up there as well. But we are going to look at the eighth command of Christ today. Uh, In the weeks past, we covered these topics. We had repent and believe, be baptized, pray, make disciples, love, remember me. That was talking about communion. And the idea of giving last week. And so today we conclude with the idea of worship. And I'm going to start off the service today with something um, a little peculiar maybe for you. I'm going to give you a couple of stories and then we're going to set those to the side and come back to them later. Uh, I'm not going to explain them right now. But uh, imagine that you are going on a trip. Here's story number one. You're going on a trip and you're taking a ride in a plane. At some point in your flight, the stewardess comes to you and brings you a parachute and says, please put this on. It will make your flight so much more enjoyable. Everything that you experience on this flight will be better if you'll just wear this parachute and make sure you do not take it off. Okay, so you're a little skeptical, but you put it on and you think, okay, who wouldn't want a better flight, right? And so you, uh, you strap it on and you think, well, it's a little uncomfortable to sit in a seat with this thing on, but maybe I'll get used to it. After a while, you find that it's difficult to move around in the cabin. You can't get into the bathroom because you can't fit through the doorway. And uh, you, uh, you, you have trouble with uh, getting comfortable in your seat. You can't recline. And then at some point, because you take up more space than you would normally, the stewardess collides with you and spills hot coffee all over your lap. At this point, you are so frustrated that you stand up and you say, I've had it, I can't take it anymore, I hate this thing, and you throw it on the ground and you say, I'm done with it. Scenario number two, imagine you're on a trip, you're flying on a plane, it's a very long flight, and the stewardess comes to you and says, would you please put this parachute on? I'm sorry to tell you, but we've received word that there's some really dangerous storms ahead. And at any moment, you may have to jump 30,000 feet. If you do not have this parachute, you will die a gruesome death. Please put it on and do not remove it for the rest of the flight until you have landed safely. All right, put those stories to the side. Now... Focal passage this morning is Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31. So let's read these together. And uh, if you don't know where Mark is, uh, it's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark. It is the second book in the New Testament. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31. It says, "One of this is the New American Standard Bible, by the way one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today that you have given us your word, uh, not only to study but to live by. Uh, you've promised that your word is profitable for every thing that we need in life, and uh, Lord, for our holiness. And I pray, Lord, that our time together would be spent focusing on your truth. And that, Father, uh, the things that would come from my mouth would honor you first and foremost. I pray, Father, that, our, um, that you would help me to, to keep my focus this morning and not be uh, thinking about uh, my ability as a deliverer, uh, but your ability as an all-knowing, all-powerful God to penetrate the hearts of human beings and to do the miraculous The things that we as human beings can't do are not impossible for you. So, Father, I pray that you'd speak to each one of us this morning and use your word to cleanse us and to make us more like your son. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let me give you some background to this passage. In chapter 11, we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's the week of the Jewish Feast of Passover, and and this is a portion of of uh, scripture and a moment in history we refer to as Palm Sunday traditionally, because the people, as Jesus rode into town on the donkey, laid their coats down in the road for him to to walk over, and and they they waved palm branches over him and they shouted Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and uh, then this would have been the Sunday before the crucifixion, and like I said, the week of Passover, Jesus, the next day after he rode into town on a donkey with people crying Hosanna, he goes to the temple, and this is the famous scene in the temple where Jesus turns over the tables of the money changers. He, he grabs a whip and drives people out, and he says, my house is to be a house of prayer. My father's house is to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves, and he runs them out. He basically goes in and kicks butt and takes names. And uh, then the day after that, he goes back to the temple and the Pharisees basically say this to him uh, right before in verse in chapter 12, right before where we were reading, uh, they say basically to him, by whose authority do you do these things? These are the priests and the scribes talking to Jesus because here he's come into their their place of worship where they're in charge. They're the religious leaders. He's come into their house, so to say, uh, and, and he has disrupted things, and he's uh, made a mess of what they were doing. And they say, by whose authority do you do these things? So Jesus is always outsmarting them. Obviously, he's son of God. They didn't realize that, and so um, they never caught on quick enough, I guess. But uh, Jesus is always outsmarting them and trumping them, and he says basically... Um, he asks them some questions that they can't answer. And he says, well, then I'm not going to tell you by whose authority I do what I do then. If you can't answer me, I'm not going to answer you. That's kind of where, where it went. And then, um, so they got angry. They left and they went and got some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, some, some more religious leaders, and they thought, oh, these guys are the really, really smart ones. They're, they're smarter than we are, so we're gonna go grab these guys and bring them in, and, and uh, maybe they can trump Jesus. And so they begin to ask Jesus these questions, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees disagreed on some of their theological uh, perspectives on things. So specifically, one of the big things was the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in a bodily resurrection, and a lot of uh, uh, Bible teachers will use the bad joke. Um, They didn't believe in the resurrection, and that's why they were sad, you see. Anyway, sad, you see. Uh, And so we we see that uh, they're they're trying to trip Jesus up. And then this question in verses uh, 28 through 31, this dialogue that we just read is the last of the questions that they ask him. And when they ask him this question, And they say, what's the greatest commandment or the foremost of all? And he says the greatest commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And they basically at the end of this said, you're right. And they couldn't say anything else. And so they left him alone. Um, Now, why did this shut them up? Here's the thing. This passage that Jesus, this this statement that Jesus made to them was actually an Old Testament quote. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it's something that the Hebrews refer to as the Shema. Now, the Hebrew Shema, Shema is a word that literally means to hear or the hearing. But in the Hebrew language, the implication is not just hearing, but doing. And so it means to hear and obey. It's kind of like if you were to explain a semantic difference between uh, the idea of listen and hear when you're talking to your kids. They might listen to your words but not do anything about it. But if they hear you and they follow it, then you know they got it. That kind of makes sense? And that's what the Shema word means. It means to hear and obey. And it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Let's pull those up real quick. It says, Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Basically, when? All the time, right? And uh, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now I'm going to tell you a little uh, bit of information. You ever seen the uh, Orthodox or the Hasidic Jews? And you see they've got those boxes on their heads. Um, and they put something on their doorpost called a mezuzah. And um, it's uh, uh, those, those things they put on their heads are called... Um, uh, phylacteries or something like that. Anyway, basically, what they do is they they have written on little pieces of paper this passage of scripture called the Shema, and they put it in that box and they put it on their head because they take that verse so literally. And they say we're we're going to put it at, as a frontal on our head. I I don't know if that's what God intended for them to do or not. I'm not going to say they did wrong, but I think the concept the concept for all of us who are followers. Of, of God Almighty is this. It, it, should be, it should be in the forefront of our thoughts. It should be in front of us, in our line of sight. The word of God should be in front. It should go before us. It should be what we focus on. And, and so if we put it in our mind and we put it before our eyes and we put it on the door to our home where every time we enter and every time we exit we see the word or the command of God, then we're more likely to be obedient to it. Would you agree with that? And I think, I think if nothing else, that's the concept here. The Shema for the Hebrew is a centerpiece of their morning and evening prayers. They would pray at least twice a day, every morning and every evening. And this was the central part of their prayer. And it, it is uh, the reciting of the Shema was linked to the concept of reaffirming their, their personal relationship with the God who delivered them. The, the Ten Commandments where God said, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. And so they put this in front of them to remind them of that relationship with him. It, and literally, the Hebrews considered reciting the Shema, they stated it this way. They called it receiving the kingdom of heaven. Now that's language we hear Jesus use a lot in the New Testament. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, so on and so forth. As a matter of fact, if you read past the passage in Mark 12 that we were just talking about, you'll see that one of the Pharisees responded to Jesus, you're right, that is the greatest command. And Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom. That's when they shut up. So they they viewed this literally as reciting this as receiving the kingdom of heaven. And this guy recited it after Jesus said it. And Jesus said, you're not far, but you're not there. <laughs> now, that's kind of a smack in the face, I think, to the Hebrews uh, for, for them, because this was such a big deal to them. And so that's where we park ourselves today. And um, the, these, these words they would have been very familiar with. For our discussion today, I want you to notice, though, that Jesus didn't use the word worship in Mark 12. He used the word, or the words, love the Lord your God. But I want to assure you that he is most definitely talking about the concept of worship. So we're going to talk, first of all, about what is worship. What is worship? Worship, this word in the English language, comes from two roots, the root worth and "sight." And so worth means value, sight means to ascribe or to, to, um, to denote. So we have this idea of ascribing worth or value or weightiness to something. It's the idea of honoring, enlarging, or magnifying. Now, I want you to think about this. Can you imagine? Now, God is so much bigger than we can even perceive. But you take the idea of the biggest Picture that you can construct in your mind of, of God's holiness and then put a magnifying glass on it. And there you have a concept of what it means to worship God. It means that you can look at just this one facet of who he is and then magnify it. It'll never be big enough to match up with his holiness. It'll never be big enough to match up with his worthiness. And so we are looking at this idea of worship Uh, So we need to understand, first of all, that worship begins begins with an accurate understanding of God. It it means that we have to understand his nature. We have to understand his character. We have to understand his personality. And God, God has a personality. We have to understand his worth. And until we see God in the correct light, we can't really worship him. I've said this before, and I don't know how many of you were present when I did, but I've said this before, we can only worship God based on what we understand or know about him. If you haven't received Christ, if you haven't received salvation, if you haven't received mercy and grace from Jesus and his shed blood on the cross, you can't worship him as a merciful God. You haven't experienced his mercy. If you don't see him as holy, you don't see yourself as utterly wicked and depraved, Therefore, you can't worship him for his great holiness and his love for you, a sinner. You understand the concept? We cannot worship God without an accurate understanding of him. And so that's key to our discussion today. God is worthy of our worship, he is the object of our worship. And so we have to understand the object. In the New Testament, there's two words in the Greek that are primarily used. Uh, for the word worship. When you read passages in the New Testament and you see the word worship in the text, usually it is a variant of one of these two words. The first one is proskuneo, which means to kiss the hand in reverence, to bow, to prostrate oneself before. And so the idea of prostrate, that's, that's laying flat on your face. This idea of bowing or kissing the hand in reverence. Imagine the images in movies and plays and and television shows that you've seen of people greeting a king or a queen. They usually kneel and they kiss the hand. They kiss the ring, the sign of the authority. They bow their head. They don't look up. They don't look on the face of the king. They bow their heads low and they look at the ground. This is the same idea, and then. Latreio, which is the idea of priestly service, it means to minister to God, to, re, to render religious homage or honor, and to serve, to do the service. So we have this idea of, I'm just going to kind of sum them up. We have the idea of, of um, reverence and awe, and we have the idea of service. Those are the two words that we see in the New Testament predominantly. So, why, if we're talking about worship, why does the scripture that Jesus quoted use the word love? What does Jesus mean when he says, love the Lord your God? This is important because love in the the word love in the English language is a pretty convoluted term. Because we say, we apply that word to all kinds of things. I love my wife. I love my kids, I love my car, I love my church, I love chocolate ice cream, I love rock and roll, I love this TV show, I love summertime, I love my job, I love sleeping late, I love listening to the rain, I love roller coasters, you name it. We apply the word love to so many different things. But do you really love your kids the way you love chocolate ice cream? I hope not. One of those is out of balance if you do. And, and that's the point. We have a problem because the word love in English is too ambiguous. In biblical Hebrew and Greek, there are many words for love. And each one of those languages has different words for different types of love. And some words express physically intimate love or love between friends or general kindness. But in this passage, the word that Jesus used in Mark 12 is that big word in the Greek for love that we all know, and it is agape, agape, or agapeo. And this is the idea of the unconditional love of God. It's biblical love that has God as its object, its true motivator, and its source. In other words, you can't have agape love unless God initiates agape love in you. Because God is love. God is agape love. And it's, it's not directed toward the world or the things of the world. It's directed toward him. And the ultimate example of this agape love is Jesus Christ. Paul writes about this kind of love in the famous love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. And if you ever read that, you know, we hear that a lot at weddings and stuff like that. We hear, you know, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, blah, 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 blah. All these things that that sound oh so sweet. But have you ever tried to examine your life and figure out if that's really the way you love the person you say you love? He's not easily offended. It keeps no record of wrongs. Is that how you love people? Is that how I love people? I, you know, honestly, I wish I could love people like that consistently, but I can't. And you can't either. And so we got to understand that, that 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love is the agape love that we're talking about. And it's the agape love that Jesus is talking about in, in Mark 12. And it in the source of that love is God. We have to get it from Him. So. Here's here's a um, Here's something we need to think about. When we say love, what do we really mean? Do we mean agape? When we say love, we usually mean this. We mean to use or to get from. You probably sit there thinking, no, that's that's not that's not what I think of as love. Hold on just a minute. Let me give you an example. I love my car. Let's say I bought a new car. I love my car. And then a few weeks later, it breaks down. leaves me stranded. So I have to take it in and get it repaired. I'm like, well, I still like my car. I'm going to move up here. Feedback happening. Uh, I still like my car, but I'm a little frustrated with it. Then it starts breaking down regularly. And every two weeks, it's in the shop. Now, instead of loving my car, I hate my car. I hate my car. Why do I hate my car? Because it doesn't serve me anymore. It's not dependable. It doesn't make me feel good anymore. How about this? I used to love, absolutely love, my favorite meal in the world, barbecue beef ribs. And all the guys went, yeah. (laughs) Barbecue beef ribs used to be my favorite. Why did I say used to be? I would have said I love barbecue ribs. But after I went out to dinner at TGI Friday's in Myrtle Beach and got food poisoning, I detested barbecue beef ribs. I didn't want to see them. I didn't want to smell them. I didn't want anybody to mention them. I definitely didn't want to taste them. And it was years before I even tried them again. And the only reason that I had them again was because my mother-in-law-to-be heard that they were my favorite meal and made them for me. And I knew that if I didn't try it, I was in the doghouse. So (coughs) that, ladies and gentlemen, is called love. (laughs) But I detested barbecue beef ribs. Why? Because they didn't make me feel good anymore. They made me feel miserable. They brought heartache and pain to my life. And trust me, I won't go into the details, but it was heartache and pain. I don't know if anybody in here has ever had food poisoning. It's not good. (laughs) We say that we love something when we get to use it. Next slide, please. We say we love something when we get to use it or when it serves us the way we desire But when it brings us heartache and pain, we hate it. See, what happens is when we love incorrectly, the object of our love becomes an irritation when it lets us down. And irritation leads to resentment. And resentment leads to hatred. So is that really love then? What if I'm doing the same thing with my spouse? How many divorces could be prevented if people had a different understanding or a different definition of the word love? What if I'm doing the same thing with my kids? And that's why I get angry with them when they don't obey me or they don't please me with their behavior. What if I'm doing the same thing with my best friend or my boss or my coworkers? What if the source of all of my relational difficulties is that I don't really know how to love people? That I'm just using them and getting from them? <clears throat> I say I love this person, but when I'm not able to use them, when they don't serve me the way I desire, when what I get in response is heartache and difficulty, then I begin to be irritated by them. And irritation leads to resentment. Resentment eventually becomes hatred. And the next thing you know, the relationship is going south so fast that there's no seeming way to repair it. What if I do the same thing with God? See, most Christians don't have a theology of suffering. Someone tells us, won't you give your heart to Jesus? He'll give you love, joy, peace, happiness. Your life will be so much better if you pray this prayer. But that's not how it works, is it? It's like the first parachute story the promise was a lie. The purpose of the parachute was not about your happiness on the flight. And the purpose of Christ in your life is not about happiness in this life. But that's what we present to people oftentimes when we share the gospel. We say, ask Jesus into your heart and he'll make everything better. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes it gets worse. Sometimes it's harder. Some of you, I'm looking at some of your faces. I know some of you know this. I know some of you have experienced this. I think we do this with God because what happens is when we think that the parachute is meant for as our source of enjoyment and fulfillment, then we're misled that it's about us and we begin to resent the parachute because it didn't fulfill the promise. And with God, we aren't, when we do this with him, we're not really worshiping. We're worshiping a false idea of who he is. We're worshiping a false idea of how things are. Remember we said in the beginning, you, you can't begin to worship truly until you understand him correctly. And so when we don't understand what God is about in our lives, then we get this all backwards. We're worshiping a false idea, and if we really loved God we would treat salvation more like the second parachute story. We would begin to see the difficulties and the trials and the sufferings in life in light of a different perspective. The perspective of putting on Christ has nothing to do with giving us a better life. Rather, it's going to be difficult in life either with him or without him, maybe worse with him at times, maybe more difficult when he's our focus. But no matter what the discomfort that life holds, The purpose of the parachute, which is Jesus, is that through him we will be delivered. If the demise of the plane is imminent, don't you want to know you have a parachute? The jump is death. The fall is hell. And the parachute is salvation for those who will put on Christ. What I want us to understand this morning is this idea that when we look at our life in Christ, more like the first parachute story, we're not focused on worshiping a true concept of God because we don't see Him as Lord. We don't really love Him. We love us. We worship the way that makes us feel good. We worship the way that caters to our happiness or our fulfillment or our enjoyment. We only worship Him in the ways that we're willing to allow Him in our lives. Why do you think throughout history there have been so many arguments in the church over styles of music or traditions of men? Because we have a tendency to worship us. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not worship. That is not love. That is what the Bible calls idolatry. And we have to understand the difference between worship and idolatry before we go any farther this morning because idolatry says it's about me. Why do you think people in the Old Testament had so many idols? They worshiped the ones that seemed to serve them and when their God, in air quotes, didn't fulfill their needs, they found another God that would. And you and I do the same thing with God. We trade the true concept of God for the type of God that we think he is or that we want him to be or that somebody tells us will fulfill us. But that's not worship. That's idolatry because we're worshiping the false god of self. God is intended to have the supreme place in man's life. No other love can be allowed to rival the love for God. This is why Jesus said, unless you hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sister for my namesake. That's a hard passage. Most of us in here have heard that passage and go, well, why would Jesus want us to hate our family? It's not that he wants us to hate our family. It's that he wants us to truly love God. And when we truly love God, then we realize that every other thing we thought was love is really hate. Because it's really idolatry. So we have to love God first before we can actually love those people. Because God is the source of love. He's the motivator of love. So there's a difference between worship and idolatry. And unfortunately, we don't see that very often. What we think of as love is really idolatry. So you need to understand that God's will for your life has nothing to do with your happiness. It has everything to do with your holiness. And once we see that, then when we come in contact with the circumstances of life, good or bad, indifferent, whatever it is then we can filter that through a different concept of God's love and a different concept of worship. We can take it and say, I hate it, I don't like it, it feels bad, it makes me miserable, but God, you have a purpose in it. Help me to honor you. I bet some of you in here are thinking right now about specific instances in your life that you wish you had understood that when you were going through them. I've got those two. So how are we commanded to worship God then? Let's look at what Jesus said. First of all, we're commanded to worship God with all our heart. That's the emotional nature of worship. Now this is the part we like. This is the part we specialize in. (laughs) Oftentimes. We, but this is the idea of we need to surrender our, or we think we do anyway, because we have the wrong concept, but when we turn it around and we make it about him and not about how we feel, then it's, it becomes not having feel good moments, but having moments where we surrender our feelings. This is the idea of surrendering your emotions, all your affections and your desires to Christ. It, it can result in passionate expression it can result in joy that goes beyond circumstances. And this is the aspect of worship that leads us as human beings oftentimes to make music such prominent means of expression and connection with God because music has the ability to transcend certain things that that other, other activities or other things Id- things in this world don't have the ability to do. It has an uh, ability to connect our intellect with our emotion. I saw recently um, a a pastor who's much more scholarly and and, uh, well-versed in the Scripture than I am, who um, he posted on Facebook a picture with a Statement that supposedly is fact. I haven't checked it uh, out to make sure it's valid, but this is what he said. Um, he said that music is the only thing that engages the entire human brain. You realize what, how amazing that is? I mean, that's why music is powerful. It, it, it has the idea to, to plant ideas deep within us because supposedly, last time I heard, people have always been saying that human beings only use like 10 percent of their brain capacity, that we've got a whole lot more brain than we actually use, and we haven't figured out why we got all that other stuff if we don't use it. And right here, if this statement is true that music engages 100 percent of the human brain, that's amazing. That is an awesome God. And music is a gift. So it, that's why it becomes such a prominent part of our worship or our idea of worship. It deals with the heart portion. Uh, let's look at some verses. Psalm 100, and Mike uh, spoke to us earlier this morning as we started out the service. Psalm 100 verse 2 says, Serve the Lord with gladness, come before him with joyful singing. In this passage, we see both the idea of service and homage or reverence here. We also see emotion joyful singing, and we see music. Uh, Next passage, Psalm 66, verses 1 through 4, says, Shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. In this passage we see passionate expression again, and we see music. And we see a, a, a call, a command for, for all the earth to worship and for the people of God to sing the glory of His name and make his praise glorious or magnified. Um, First Chronicles 15 verse 16. Then David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives the singers with instruments of music, harps, lyres, loud sounding cymbals, go drummers, and to raise sounds of joy. So we see music, we see musical instruments, we see joyous expression, all as an aspect of worship, as an element of heart surrender. In Ephesians 5, 19 through 20, Paul says... Not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That's the idea of corporate worship. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To God, even the Father. So we see the idea of music again. We see the idea of fellowship and unity with other believers. We see the idea of corporate expressions of worship. And thanksgiving in all circumstances for all things. These are elements, or these are are verses that help us see the element of worshiping God with all our heart, dealing with the surrender of our emotions. The next part uh, about how we're supposed to worship is we're supposed to worship with all of our soul. The soul is the volitional nature of worship. This is, if you don't know that word, volitional is just the idea of the will, it's conscious choice. Jesus is reminding us to surrender our will to God's authority. This includes, now listen to this because this is important. This includes our prerogative to make our own decisions. It includes our concept of individuality or independence. It includes our self-claimed position as king of my own life. I get to make my own choices. I mean, that's what we've been fighting for since we were kids, right? We as <laughs> soon as we realized we had opinions, we decided we wanted to make the choices, and we bucked our parents when they, dis, when they said no. Then we got out of the house, and we were allowed to make our own decisions, and we started going no to God. And that's, that's the human condition. And Jesus is saying, if you really are going to worship God, you have to love him with all your soul. You have to surrender that part of your life. You have to surrender what you think about things, what you want in a situation. All of that belongs to him. What matters most is what God has said about something already, not what we think or what we feel or what we want. Now, guys, we see this problem in the church today, and we see it all through our society. Right now, just a few months ago, we had a big decision that our Supreme Court made for us. Let me just tell you something. I'm no government uh, expert, I'm no uh, um, uh, law expert, but what I understand is that the legislative branch of the government doesn't make law. They're supposed to discern the law, interpret law, but they don't make law. Congress makes laws. The president isn't, isn't supposed to make law either. Congress makes laws. Who makes up Congress? Supposedly the people that represent us, they don't act like it very much, but supposedly the people that represent us are making laws. Now guys, when we go around saying that homosexual marriage is the law of the land, we're just giving the authority away. Because the judicial system does not make law. And Congress has not made a law that requires us to follow that. Now listen, I know that people have a hard time with this conversation, even in the church, because somebody in this room probably knows somebody or knows somebody who knows somebody who claims to be a homosexual. And when we start thinking about people we love, we begin to think about issues based on our emotions. But if we are going to worship God, we have to surrender our emotion and we have to surrender our will. And we have to say, you know, it doesn't matter how I feel about an issue. What matters is what God said. Let God be true and every man a liar. If I make decisions based on how I feel then I'm going to be in trouble because Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can know it? In other words, who can understand why we do what we do? Our feelings, our emotions will mislead us because we're wicked at the core. That's why we need to surrender and submit those things to the Lord. We're supposed to do what he says and the authority comes Not from the messenger, but the one who sent the message. So when we relay relay those ideas to people, they may get upset and they may get upset with us. But it's not based on us. So when somebody says, well, you say that about that, but you're a hypocrite because, and they start pointing out all your faults, you go, yeah, I'm a sinner. You're right. I'm wrong, I've am wrong. i done wrong in all those areas. That doesn't change this because this is not based on what I think. This is based on what God says. And the same God that said that those things are wrong that you have an issue with me over is the same one who said this is wrong. The authority belongs to the one who sent the message. Jesus himself demonstrated for us the surrendering of the will. Let's look at this passage, Matthew 26, 39. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it says, And he went a little beyond them, and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus modeled submission of the will for us. This is a worship passage. The Apostle Paul reminds us of the same idea, that our job is to reflect that kind of submission that Jesus had, Uh, to the will of God as an act of worship. He reminds us this in Philippians. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard his equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul's referring to the very passage that we looked at in Matthew. He's talking about that instance. Jesus modeled worship by surrendering the will. That's humility. The next aspect of our worship is that we're to worship God with all of our mind. That's the intellectual nature of worship. This means we surrender our thoughts, our worries, our plans, our ideas of what is true and what is not. This will bring us to a deeper understanding of who God is and what He's like. It's very closely related to that concept of soul um, because it is the mechanism, the mind is the mechanism by which we bring our will and our emotions into submission to Christ. If we're going to remove incorrect thoughts or beliefs, then we have to first introduce correct thoughts and correct beliefs. We have to remind ourselves regularly of God's holiness and His authority in our lives. We have to focus on the commands that He's given. We have to study His Word and His teachings. Uh, An example of this is in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, uh, "'How can a young man keep his way pure?' by keeping it according to your word. And then he goes on to say later in that same chapter, in verses 15 and 16, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. He is saying that he has chosen to meditate. That's focused thinking. He has chosen to meditate on the word of God, the commands of scripture. Psalm 119, verse 11, I think it is, it's in between there, says, I have hidden your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. You realize all sin is against God. It doesn't matter who you offended or who you wronged. All sin is against God. And the psalmist says, I've, I've, I'm, I'm going to meditate on your word. I'm going to put it in my heart. I'm going to do everything I can to keep my way pure. Right now, my kids are working on Scripture memorization, and they've memorized more Scripture in the past few years than I've memorized ever in my life. And uh, quite honestly, they're a whole lot smarter than me too, so it doesn't surprise me. But uh, right now, my oldest two who are here this morning are working on memorizing the entire book of James. They could come up here right now. I'm not going to ask them to because I'm already uh, going to run short on time if I don't keep moving. But uh, they could come up here and recite for you the entire first chapter out of the New American Standard, which is a little more wordy than some of the other ones. And, um, And they can do it with about 90 plus percent accuracy, word for word. Now, I don't say that to brag on them uh, although I am very proud of them, um, but I have this question: How many times do you think in the past few weeks since they started this? How many times do you think that conversations about those scriptures have come up in our home? How many times do you think that we've had questions about what a verse means or 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 how it applies to our life? It happens a lot. That's Deuteronomy 6. And you're going and you're coming when you lie down, when you get up, when you walk down the street, all those things, because they're working on it. That's part of their daily focus. You know what they're doing? They're putting the Word of God into their minds. They're putting in correct thoughts, and as they understand it and meditate on it, they're pushing out incorrect thoughts. That's an act of worship. And it's going to enable them and set them up for the ability to worship God more correctly, in a more glorifying way as they walk through life, because they have his word, not my words, not my wife's words, as we, and, and we, listen, we give plenty of instruction. Anybody who's been a parent knows you're always telling your kids what to do and what not to do. But what they're putting in their minds when they memorize these verses is far more important than anything we ever tell them to do or not do, because it's based on the authority of God, not the authority of mom and dad. The last part um, is this, all our strength. We're supposed to worship Him with the physical nature of worship. What do I mean by the physical nature of worship? I think that a lot of times when we hear the word worship, most of us probably think about the first element, the heart. And, uh, but this element of strength is probably, in, in honesty, the most basic level of what worship is. It means that we need to surrender our actions, our behaviors, our coming and going, our activities, our choices. This is worship as a continual act of obedience. It's about what we do. It's about a way of life. Notice in the Greek, uh, if we look at the next slide, notice in the Greek again these two words that we talked about, both of these words are action words. They're physical activities to kiss, to bow, to lay prostrate, to serve, to minister. They're physical activities. And so we worship God by our lifestyle, our activities. These are outward expressions. Proskunio is an outward expression of an inward attitude of submission. It demonstrates the surrender of the heart, the soul, and the mind. And then latreo means to serve, and you get more... uh, You can't get more physical in nature than service. So here's a well-known verse where that word latreo is used. Let's look at it real quick. Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, there's a lot more I could say, but I want to kind of wrap things up right here. Have you ever thought about that phrase, a living and holy sacrifice? What is a sacrifice? It's something that dies. It's something you put to death. So, what does Paul mean a living and holy sacrifice? Holy means that we're set apart for the glory of God. It's sacred, morally pure. How can a man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word, Psalm 119. 9. It's holy, it's morally pure, it's sacred, it's set apart for the glory of God. A sacrifice is something you put to death. How do we get to be holy and blameless? Only by the blood of Christ. How can we be a sacrifice that is still living? Look at the next passage, Galatians 5, verse 22. We probably all know this verse. I have been crucified with Christ, sacrificed. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is the concept of a living sacrifice. This is... Inwardly, spiritually, my soul, my emotions, my will, my heart, all, my, 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 my choices, all of those things die. I put them to death, and now I allow God to live through me. That's a living sacrifice. We need to understand that we have to die to self. We have to die to the flesh. We have to crucify our feelings. We have to crucify our will. We have to crucify our thoughts. And then we have to fill our minds and hearts with God's word. So our activity would be as if Christ himself were living in our physical bodies. We can behave correctly outwardly and have a wrong attitude on the inside. We can have a right attitude on the inside and fail to do what's right. I mean, How many of you know that prayer is incredibly important for you to live out the life that God has for you. How many of you know that daily time in the word is incredibly important to live out the life that God has for you? And yet, how many of us, if we were honest, would have to raise our hands and say, I don't do it. We can have the right attitude and not have the outward expression. We can have the right expression and not have the right attitude. We have to do all of it. This is what we need to understand, bottom line for today. Worship should not be something we do, but something that we live. For the follower of Jesus Christ, everything is an act of worship. It's not music. Worship and music are not synonyms. Music is an expression of an inwardly surrendered life and an outwardly obedient life. It's the same thing Jesus was talking about in John 4 when he said, those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. This whole series is summed up in this last message because all those topics that we covered, repentance, belief, baptism, prayer, discipleship, loving other people, communion, giving time, uh, talent, and treasure to God, and all those things, they're all acts of worship. So as we give the invitation this morning, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to bow with me. And let me just, the band's going to come out, and uh, let me just say this to you. Maybe you realize today that what you thought was love for God is actually worshiping yourself. In a moment, I want you, I want to encourage you to come forward and confess that to the Lord. We're all guilty of idolatry on some level. Ask Him to help you to truly worship Him. Maybe you have a tendency to view worship as um, singing only or a specific action or event in time rather than being something that you live every moment of life. So I'm going to ask you uh, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed this morning, which of the four aspects of your worship, emotions, will, thoughts, choices, behaviors, which of these things have you been withholding from God? And maybe you need to come forward this morning and ask for God to help you with that. And maybe you're here today and you realize you've never seen yourself in the light of God's holiness and you recognize you're broken and you're sinful and you need forgiveness. And if you'd like to know Christ as your Savior, there are people here who would be willing to talk with you and pray with you. Don't take the chance of finishing your plane flight without a parachute on. Let's pray. Father, You're holy and worthy of all the worship we can give you. And you deserve to have servants who surrender 100% emotion, will, thoughts, behavior, all to your lordship. And we're not there yet. Lord, we need you to help us. And I'm asking you this morning, Father, to do a work in the lives of each person here. Help us to give you everything so that we can be your representatives on this earth. Dead, with you living in and through us. Help us, Lord, to reflect your glory in every facet of life and teach us to worship. And for anybody in this room that has not taken that first step of confessing and turning from sin and seeking your forgiveness, um, Lord, please, this morning, would you give them courage? Courage to take the first step so they can experience your grace and receive your mercy and your salvation. In Jesus name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from day three church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day 3 Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life.